We are in a series called The Peacemaking Church. And uh, part one, the emphasis of that is that real peace is founded on God and His work in Christ. There's the first thing when it, we talk about peace, we're not talking about peace that the world talks about. We're talking about, first of all, peace because we're at war with God. So the first place we need peace is with God, right? No more war. It says that we're, we're at war with God and He's at war with us. So our vertical peace with God is our only hope if we're going to have any kind of peace. And that's because of Jesus Christ. Then last week, which I did poorly because I got stuck in the first part of my introduction because it was so fun to see. But last week was about real peace has a testimony, has a testifying effect. It evangelizes. When unity and peace are seen in practical ways in the body, in the nitty-gritty of community life, over the long haul of life, especially in the inevitable conflicts. There's conflict going on in our body all the time. We have a potential for conflict in this decision we're trying to make. But that's when we can show if we have real peace through Jesus Christ and how we show it with each other and how we walk through this. It is a huge testimony to a watching and needy of peace world. I talked about war language because here's the deal. Peace with God and the peace that Jesus Christ gives us is actually a war strategy to build God's kingdom. That's why I got a little caught and I confused a lot of you. I realized I didn't do a good job. That's why Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, or 1 through 16, is all about the unified body and the bond of peace that is so functioning together. It's a testimony to the world saying, wow, they're speaking the truth to love, or truth and love to each other. They're, they're working together. What is this peace they have? It's a huge testimony, and it's part of the strategy of war that God has called us to. What are your feet shod with when we look at the spiritual armor? Your feet are shod with the gospel of peace. It's war, but it's war against the spiritual forces of wickedness, not against people. We're there to rescue them. This week, we're starting to step, move, now we're going to start talking about more about the relational peace, okay? We are now moving into the peace in our relationships, and I'm calling it hope and help for our conflicts, all right? So that's what we're starting to move into. But for us to do that, first we have to start with, uh, start in the garden, all right? Because there was no conflict in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. No conflict, all right? Genesis 3, we see the beginnings of all the conflicts we'll ever have in life. It's true. It is. It's where it all starts. (laughs) Oh, we'll see. There's more than that. But you're true, actually. Just kidding. So let's open up to Genesis 3. It's the first book of your Bible. And we're going to see why there's, uh, why creation is, has a conflict in itself and why it's decaying. There's thorns and thistles because of what happened here. Why there's the war of the sexes between men and women, why there's war in the family, why there's war in nations. It's because of what happened right here. God's original design, peace and harmony, because there was no sin. All right, so let's look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent, and this was, this was Satan. I'm just giving you some interpretation here because that's what we find out later. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Okay, he's not talking to Adam here, he's talking to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of the, any tree in the garden? 
So notice what Satan's first thing is to do. Is he's trying to cause what? Doubt. And doubt of his goodness specifically. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now some people say that maybe Adam told her that part, or maybe she's adding to Scripture here. Did he say you can't even touch it? No, he says just don't eat it. But notice that there's, there's a little, you know, she answered correctly for the most part, but look at what, what goes on here. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Oh, hey, we got something to gain. He doesn't want us to have this knowledge. He's keeping stuff back from us. Oh, this guy, he's telling us we'll, have, we'll get something that God is trying to hold back from us. Because God's not really good. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food lust of the flesh, and was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. I know I'm borrowing from 1 John. That's what he says. Those are the three categories of sins. All of them happened right here. Hey, she looked at it. Ooh, that probably will be good. Ooh, it looks really good. Hey, and it's going to make me know everything like God? Oh, yeah, I want that. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What was Adam not doing that God called him to do? Lead. Should have said, honey, don't listen to him. Right? But the, here's the problem. Who had been giving them the knowledge that they needed before this event? God was their counselor. They, didn't, they weren't created knowing everything. They had God counseling them. And the problem is, is now they're listening to another counselor, to letting them have authority. That, that serpent. Then, both of, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Meaning, he was, that's what he would do. He'd hang out with them daily to have relationship with them. And now was the usual time, and they hear him coming, hear his voice. So they ran to him. Is that what they did? No. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They ran now instead of hanging out with him. Relationship was severed. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you think he knew where they were? He's God. Yes, he did. But what is he trying to do? Get them to start owning what's going on. But we see they don't do that. And he, meaning Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Was he afraid before this point? Never. Because I was naked and I hid myself. God said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yeah, you're right, I blew it. It's the woman. Wait, 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 wait. look at this. Yeah, you're like, she's in the other room. I'm going to tell her you said that. She's going to listen to this later, and you're in trouble. That was Jay Adams, by the way. Or Jay Adams. <laughs> Jay. But look what he says, you guys. It was the woman you gave me. Whoa, Adam. Wow. He's in a lot of trouble now. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Was she, was she incorrect? No, but she, the problem is, is that she actually listened to him and didn't just remember what God had said and just stuck to that. Adam, blame shifter, the woman you gave me, he blamed two other people. Eve, it was the snake. And here's the deal. We inherited this from our first parents. Do you do any of this? Do you? Everyone just say yes. It's not my fault. I, can you blame me? I didn't mean to. No, you chose to. <laughs> this desire to get what we want, when we want, how we want it, and also the running away from the consequences of sin and finger-pointing when we get caught. Notice what this does to our relationships. It does not breed unity, peace, and trust, does it? Not at all. Our self-orientation, self-seeking, selfish, and sinful nature. Did I, am I pointing the finger at myself enough? And you ought to, too. Causes us to quickly pass on the blame to somebody else. Our blame shifting, our desire to win in the wars and conflicts, to get our own way. It may actually work to get what we want. And we may even feel better for a moment, moment or two, but we will be sinning, first of all, in doing this, and we're only destroying relationships. Okay? And we won't experience the peace of God. We are quick to leave God out of our relationships in the nitty-gritty, right? We go to church, we say the right things, when there's actually conflict, we're quick to want to win and get our own way. We are quick to leave God out of our relationships, and because of that, that's disaster. So what's the answer? Okay, that was, we paint a bad picture. Well, there's a great phrase from a series that I, I went through uh, several years ago on, on the heart of change. It's a biblical counseling series, and uh, it's on James. I'm actually using it for part of the message today. But he said this, after walking through Genesis 3, he says, No hope for me in Genesis 3, but hope by the ton in 1 John 1. So what does 1 John 1, 9 through 10 say? It says, if we confess our sins, wait, what does confess mean? To confess, the word in Greek is homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo means to say. What it means to confess is to say the same thing about what I've done that God says about what I've done. That's confession. Not, well, I kind of made a mistake. Well, I didn't really, you know, it was, it, was, it was no big deal, you know, it was kind of a white lie right? What does God say that is? It's called sin. I spoke a lie. I did not tell the truth or whatever it is that you happen to be doing. Confession is to own what you did and to say what God says about it because then we can start the right process of confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, and being restored in a relationship. So next week we're talking about repentance but this week is confession. We need to start in our own house, cleaning up house. And when there's conflict, the first thing we got to do is say, ooh, what have I done? Even if they started it and there's conflict, the question you have to go to is, wait, how did I respond to what they did? Because God doesn't, give, hey, if someone does something evil against you, you are not excused to sin back, are you? Just say no, because God says, no, I'm going to hold you accountable for how you respond. Okay, so 
We're going to just keep walking through. So first of all, I want us to talk about how Jesus calls his people to start with self-evaluation. That's the blank on your sheet there. Doing the log list, okay? It, start in your own home. It's, I call it self-confrontation, self-evaluation, okay? Uh, so in, I'm in Matthew 7, if you want to turn there. We are back in Matthew, and Eula is not here to groan at this point. But we're in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. But the first four verses are where he says self-righteous judging is condemned, all right? Before he gets to the part where he says do some self-evaluation, just listen to this. Judge not that you not be judged. How many of you have heard people quote that at you? When do they quote that at you? When you point out something they're doing wrong or calling it sin. Oh, you're not supposed to judge, and they quote this verse. You guys, they're, they're incorrectly quoting this verse. Okay, so let me talk about that. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? Here he's not saying that we shouldn't confront people in their sins. He commands us to in the same gospel, Matthew 18. All right, I want to take care of that first before we walk through what he does say to do. Notice in Matthew 18, Jesus only said church, the word church, twice in his ministry. Matthew 18, all right, and Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is when he told Peter, hey, this, this confession you just made is the foundation of the church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. I talked about that last week. The second time he used church is this in Matthew 18. If your brother, that's how i another Christian, sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Well, judge, don't, don't, you can't be judging me. What does he say? Jesus says, go. Now, this verse helps us balance what that means. But let me just walk through this. We are called when there's conflict and there's sin, to go say something. We are supposed to. And we are supposed to judge, but not the way Matthew 7 is talking about. Okay, so we'll get back to that, but just see this clearly. And then if he doesn't listen, take one or two brothers along with you. And if he doesn't repent then, what do you do? You tell it to the church. Can you go to the next slide? But Paul also says that. Galatians 6, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... They're stuck and ensnared in habitual sin. You who are spiritual, not prideful and self-righteous in Matthew 7, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Well, how does that happen? You go and confront them in their sin, Matthew 18, to help them. The point is always restoration so that they would repent and be reconciled to God and to the church. 1 Thessalonians, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. That word admonish means warn, exhort, confront. And when he's talking about the idol here, those who aren't working, they're lazy, and they're just wanting people to take care of them and not do anything. Okay? And talking about in the body of Christ. So just so we're clear on that, Jesus here in Matthew 7 is not saying you don't confront other Christians caught in sin. Okay? You are supposed to, but it's what he's dealing with here is that self-righteous judging where you're caught in your own sins and you've got this huge log of a sin you know, and you see, oh, let me help you with that speck. You're hitting there. That's, that's what he's talking about here. Not, it's not self-righteous judging. He's condemning harsh, self-righteous confrontation and finger pointing. 
First, the self-righteous person will be confronted by God with the same standard, that merciless, graceless standard that they are applying to the other person. Ouch! Second, Jesus points out that the confronter's sin is like a log stuck in the eye. When I got hit by that surfboard three years ago, that was a big log. It didn't get stuck, though, thankfully, right? But it's, it's just it's so overwhelming, this log. The whole point is he's using hyperbole, but it makes it funny. It means that you are spiritually blinded by your own sin when you have this log, this, you're being self-righteous. A blind spot that makes them unable to really be helpful to the person who has a speck. Because you can't really operate if one of your eyes isn't working, right? Okay? Just so, we, so he says, start with confrontation or self-confrontation, you hypocrites. And that's what we get in verse 5. Do some self-confrontation, then you help others. You hypocrite, (laughs) Jesus isn't mincing words, is he? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. It does say we are to help each other grow and change. Just deal with yourself first so that you're not doing it in self-righteous pride, but you're doing it with humility, and you're doing it with the point of loving the other person. Right? If you find yourself doing this a lot at others and walking, they're so blah, blah, blah. That's a critical spirit. That's a self-righteous spirit. Okay? And that's, that's condemned by Jesus. Okay? So that's that. Do with humility. Do the self-confrontation and then help others. We are called to help each other. In being a peacemaking person, part of a peacemaking church, we start all conflict resolution with a self-confrontation What have I done to initiate or escalate this conflict? But before we go on, because, okay, I get it, Chris, start here and then I can help others if there's a conflict. Well, I want us to do a little heart check first. We have to get better at doing the self-evaluation of the heart, right? Because here's the deal. You all, and me too, we all have a self-defense lawyer living inside of us. We're always the star of the story, always the innocent victim. Or if we do acknowledge, well, I shouldn't have done that, we always minimize our part. Okay? So let's do, let's do a little heart check. And we're going to go, talk now to Jesus' half-brother, James. So turn over your Bibles to James chapter 4. James calls Christians to see their part in conflicts. And what is it that's the core of it? Sinful desires. That's the blank on your thing there under point two. Sinful desires run amok. Gone crazy. And he's saying the only answer is heart change. That's what we're looking at. So James here is addressing Christians in his letter. And James, the whole book is truly the Proverbs of the New Testament. Some of you like reading one Proverbs a day. James is just like that. He has a lot of good, good pithy quotes there. In the previous verses, just before chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he's talking about the fruits of godly wisdom, wise living that is God-honoring. And, and there's a, because of that godly wisdom, there's a wonderful climate of peace and righteousness in that kind of group. Look at uh, this uh, next, next slide. Oh, I'll read it to you because I didn't put the slide up. But here's James 3, 17 through 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Do you want that? Okay, that's the kind of church that if we work at bringing peace, it says a harvest of righteousness comes out of that. Isn't that cool? But then he switches in James chapter 4. Again, there's no chapter breaks in the original letters. We put them in to help us look things up. So he just switches. Okay, let's look at a body where there isn't any peace. And let's, let's address why that's happening. Let's look at a body that's having conflict. And let's address why it is and then what you can do about it. That's what he's doing in James chapter 4. All right? And by the way, here's a heads up. James is known for his harsh language. Not, not cussing, but his in your face, okay? So we're going to see it right here in this, in this chapter. My, first of all, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3, my heart's role in causing the conflicts. He says the same exact thing that Jesus did. Start with yourself. And the blank there under A is the cause of spiritual conflict. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? So you say, hey, what's causing all this division? And that's also war language, by the way, that conflicts and quarrels is actually what is causing wars in the body. He says, isn't it you? See, we want to say, well, it's them. He says, is it not you? You? I'm just pointing at it. Is it not you? And I have to say yes, because he's going to show us why. Is it not this that your passions, your desires, your wants, your cravings are at war within you? You desire, you want, I need, and you do not have, so what do you do? You murder, and that's a metaphor for hate. Jesus tied those two in in the Sermon on the Mount. You hate because of it. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why? So you can get it. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, I'm asking for it. Well, he goes on to say, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. And what is the wrong kind of asking? He says it right here. To spend it on your own desires or passions, your own wants. You're not wanting something to be a blessing to others. You're wanting it for yourself. Ah. So the cause of conflicts are when my wants become demands and put me at war with others. And here's this great phrase. I think I have it up here. There we go. That dark one right there. I want what I want when I want it, how I want it, and you'd better get in line with my wants or I'm going to punish you. We call those demands that become expectations. And if you don't fulfill my expectations in our relationship, I'm going to punish you for it. That's the conflict. Do you see that? It's kind of a downward spiral. Is it okay to want something? Well, yeah. We'll see that in a second. But here's the deal. It's when our wants become, oh, I need, I must have you start demanding, and if others, you better, hey, my demand is now an expectation. You'd better fulfill my expectation. If you don't, I'm going to fight with you. You guys see that? Please see that because that's exactly what you do and it's what I do. That's what James is telling us. Driving motivations, heart desires that are ruling my heart. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, it's, it's desires that are ruling my heart, passions, desires, coveting, sinful desires gone out of control that can, that, that, as we can see here, because they lead to anger, coveting, fighting, and quarreling. They're wrong, sinful, self-centered motivations. And by the way, are there good desires that are not sinful? 
Absolutely. But can these desires become sinful? Yes, that's his point. Some desires are sinful, but many of them are not. It's, but it's what you do with those desires. Do you let them go out of control and begin to rule you in how you decide to live your life and interact with others? Wrong, self-centered motivations rather than humility in putting others first. I'm bringing in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. We're not obeying this when we get in conflict. These out-of-control wants, passions, desires run my heart at this point. Rather than the singular driving desire... That should be ruling my heart. What is that? 2 Corinthians 5.9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. The ruling desire of your heart, my heart, should be honor God and please Him above all else. That singular desire should be the one that reigns in my heart so that all these other desires that are there all the time, because that's to, to, to be a human and to be breathing is to have desires. That's just our hearts. But that if they're the ruling desire is the one to honor God above all, it keeps all of these in their proper place. And you can say no to the sinful ones. You can say, well, maybe to the ones that you do want, I'm going to make sure I do it in a way that honors God and blesses others. Instead of being satisfied in God and trusting in Him to satisfy my desires in His good time and good way, I follow my wanting heart and pursue satisfaction on my own terms, and that's what causes conflict. You guys get that? So, what is the cause of conflicts? Selfish, my selfish desires. Exactly what Jesus says, take the log out of your own eye first, right? And I want us now to see what James does, is he takes us to the consequences of sin or in these conflicts. My heart's sin and the resulting consequences result in a severe break with God. Look at the language he uses in verses 4 and 5. You adulterous people. What? He's talking about conflict in the body and he jumps to sexual immorality. What? Well, we can check this out. Let's listen to this whole thing and then we'll walk back through it. You adulterous people. Slap in the face. Do you not know that friendship with the world is war with God? Friendship with the world, I'm having a conflict with other Christians. How's that friendship with the world? Slap in the face again. He's waking us up here. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says the Spirit God caused to live within us tends towards envy? You notice I gave you the alternate translation. In your Bibles, you have a different translation, most of you, but some have this translation. It will be in the footnote, okay? Because this is a hard passage in the Greek to, to translate, but the one that I just told you, many translators believe is the one that makes more sense given the context, okay? Basically, it's saying that God put a spirit, our human spirit within us, that causes us to envy. It's that wanting, and we're looking at others, and we want what they have, okay? So this is verses 4 and 5. My heart's sin and the resulting consequences results in a severe break with God. So he gets right to the heart of it by saying, adulterous. You adulterous people. Okay, what does that have to do with me? Well, when you become a Christian, you make a covenant with God, 
You're now in a covenant relationship. Oh, the Bible has another covenant relationship where you do that. That's called marriage. Ephesians 5 talks about it. And by the way, what is the church called? The what of Christ? Bride of Christ. The Jewish people were in a covenant relationship with God. Another, he called them his, his bride too. So, whenever we choose to sin and do what we want, he's saying, in essence, in a big slap in the face, is pay attention, is that you are cheating on God. You're cheating on the covenant you made with God. Does that make sense? That's why he says, you adulterous people. (laughs) See, he's he's not parsing any language. He's saying, look, that's what you're doing. When you choose to sin in rebellion and stay in that sin and get in conflict with others, you've got to understand what is, first of all, you're cheating on God, the covenant you made with God. You are worshiping your wants more than you're supposed to worship God. Because I have my wants, but if I'm worshiping God, I'll make sure they stay where they're supposed to stay and then and seek to satisfy them in a God-honoring way. But if I'm worshiping my wants, I'll do whatever it takes to get what I want. I'll punish others that get in my way. Well, James is saying you're cheating on God, on the covenant you made with Him, you adulterous people. Do you think He was trying to grab our attention? Yes. Some commentators say, oh, he's not talking to Christians here. I totally disagree with him. He's, James is a book to Christians. So here we go. I know it sounds harsh, but we've got to say what he says, right? <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean. Do you not know that? For, he says that not only are you adulterous, but now you are a friend of the world. You're acting just like the world, folks. Right? Paul says that you're putting on the sinful, the old man again, and you're walking in the way that you're used to walk. Why are you doing that? James is saying, you're making yourself at war with God again. Now, does this mean you've lost your salvation? Everyone say that? No. No. But God does punish his children, does he not? What did I read for communion? 1 Corinthians. Paul had said, why are some of you falling asleep? It's because you guys are getting drunk during communion. God spanked some of them so hard as his children that he actually killed some of them. I'm just, what did he do to a certain couple named Ananias and Sapphira who were Christians, Acts chapter 5 or 6? They lied to the Spirit from body, and God was, at the time, he was protecting the church in all sorts of the very beginning of the church, and they were killed for their sin. They lied to the Spirit, okay? Again, I, I'm just saying what he's saying here. We have to understand that he says that you are war with God when you have rebellious sin, and you're fighting with other Christians within the body. And by the way, he calls division within the body, you know what he calls it? An abomination. That's how much he loves his bride. He loves you. This is stuff to warn us. And there's, we're getting to the good part in just a second here, okay? Please hear that. I'm going to jump to the good part because I've already said enough about this, all right? Let me say this last phrase. This one is from John Calvin. Great quote about our hearts, okay? Because I say when you're breathing, you have a heart that's, that's got desiring, Not all of them are bad, but here's what he said. Our hearts are an idol factory, constantly bubbling forth. Every desire you have can become an idol. If you want something so bad, you're willing to sin to get it, sin to keep it, or hurt those who who get in the way of you getting it or keeping it, you're worshiping now that idol. That desire has become an idol. That's why he's saying it's an idol factory, constantly bubbling forth. Right? To breathe is to be alive and have desire. So we have to understand what is the cure for this conflict, this sinful conflict. That's what he gets to in verses uh, 6 through 10. 
Isn't that great? Because that's where I'm at now. Verse 6. But, oh, I love this. It says, but he, but it says, in essence, Ephesians 2, 4, but God does what? Gives more. Oh, gosh, thank you. Lord, we need this. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's the, what's the first antidote for conflict in the body? Humility. Humility. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. What's the second antidote? Submission, submission to God. Humility before God. I am in a conflict with Chris. My, and I recognize, oh my goodness, God help me. The first thing I have to do in humility is, is view Chris differently. I need to go to Chris in humility. I need to do what I'm supposed to do. God, please forgive me. Submit to God. Resist the devil. What? Do you think what Satan wants a unified church? No, he's at war. When there's conflict, he has a part to play in this to some degree. Maybe a huge or maybe that's part of this. Submit or resist the devil. Whoa. And what will he do? Flee. You don't have to pronounce anything at him. Just resist his temptations. How do you do that? How did Jesus resist Satan's temptations? The word of God. He read the word, stood on the promises of God as revealed in the word. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When that draw near, it's not like God walked away. It means we've turned our back on him, just turn around and walk back towards him. That's called repentance. We'll talk about that more next week. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> Is he trying to make a point or what? Get things right. Deal with the sin. But look at this language. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Don't worry, be happy. No, 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 no. God wants us to be gloomy if we're stuck in sin. There is an appropriate place for mourning, folks. Blessed are those who mourn. Isn't that one of the Beatitudes? There's an appropriate place where we're stuck in sin where we should be sick of ourselves. We should. We shouldn't run from that right away. Now, you're not supposed to stay there. Not supposed to stay there. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble, whoa, what's that word again, right? Humble yourselves before the Lord, but look what he'll do. He'll let you back in. What does it say? He will exalt you. Whoa. Wow. There, there's the cure. In the midst of our raging desires and passions, we need God to help, and that's where grace steps in. Here, the, that list of responses, that's what God calls us to. That is the cure. The main one continually is humble yourselves before God, before others, walk in humility, confess your sins, say, you know what, I blew it. What can I do to make it right? And he will exalt us. It says that he'll give us other things too, but that's all he says here. But what are some of the exalting things that he does for us? How about the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit, the one who lives it, will be, it'll start bubbling out more, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. What was one of the fruits again? Love, joy, peace. Oh, I like that. Let's look at this next slide. Next one. There we go. So in essence, here's what he's saying. Top heart, a proud heart, a deceived heart, a doubting heart, a wanting heart. Okay? A heart that's not desiring to honor God. Okay? It's called an idolatrous, adulterous, hostile enemy of God. What does it lead to? Behavior that's not good. <laughs> leads to a, what is our state of being as a result of it? Miserable. God will not let Christians who are stuck in sin be happy. 
He won't. It's going to end up to misery and all sorts of bad stuff. And the ultimate result is humiliation. God opposes the proud. You're at war with God. You will lose. I will lose. But if God is the one who's ruling our hearts, we want to please Him no matter what, it's a whole different kind of behavior. Righteousness. And what's the state of being? Joy, peace, blessed, satisfaction. Right? The ultimate result? Exaltation. Do you want that? Right? And that's what he's saying. The cure is, man, God will oppose you if you're proud, but humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before God and with others. And, and I'm, I'm going to bypass David's example. You can read in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, what David does to make things right with God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any hurtful, grievous, sinful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Humble yourself before God. Ask him for help. Right? Start with the log in your own eye. How can I be a blessing to others? I'm in conflict. What have I done? God, make it known to me. Then humble yourself. Go make it right. Leave your gift at the altar. Go try to be reconciled. Let's bring unity and peace in ever increasing manner in this body. Amen? Let's be a peacemaking church. More than we, And many people say, our church is very peaceful, and it's true. I really believe that about our church. But we're breathing, so there's going to be conflicts, Right? And it's, so it's, there's more in the future. That's just, that's just life. So let's, let's be bent on being a church ready to make peace all the time evermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you especially for your patience because I know I have violated this so often. Thank you for a patient wife. Thank you for a patient church. <laughs> Thank you most of all for your loving kindness, your mercy, and your grace towards me. Help us to be a church getting better at this so that we have a greater witness to a watching and needy world. Amen.